one passionate uh, Republican voter was concerned that uh, his state would have a Democrat in office. I'm not making any political statement, just a fact here. Everybody just settled down, okay? And so he found out that his wife was on her way to get into the car to go vote for the other candidate. And that concerned him. And so he did what every logical person would do as she's driving away. He ran outside and tried to stop her and jumped in front of the car. It hit him, and he ended up in the hospital. And uh, needless to say, their marriage is sadly no longer real or the case. You might also wonder what was going on when uh, a bus full of fifth graders was uh, quickly evacuated. Uh, all of a sudden, people are saying, what's going on? And uh, they said, well, we, we have a major problem on the bus. It was a peanut on the floor. That's it. It was a peanut on the floor. Again, not trying to be insensitive to allergies in any way, shape, or form. I understand those are very real things, but the full evacuation of a bus. One might wonder if we are a people that are prone to overreact, given the situation that we face. We're a kind of people that make mountains out of molehills. If you've ever hung around the Maisies for an extended period of time, you understand that this kind of thing is just inherent in our DNA. Quite dramatic feelings. Uh, things always seem to rise above the norm of what somebody might expect. And so overreacting seems to be part of what it means to be Maisie. Uh, and yet, I think it's fair to say that overreacting is also uh, a cultural issue. We're a people full of fear full of anger. I mean, we don't even need to really bring up the whole political climate that we're in right now, right? Let's just not do that in an age of microaggression. But we're a people that overreact to realities often. 2,000 years ago, the man Jesus died and on the third day rose again. And one might think all this hubbub this morning, that here we are again, just another Thing that people overreact to. All this singing, praying, preaching, uh, all these, uh, just, uh, just this, this joy that's in the room and the intensity here. Could it be that this is just a colossal overreaction to what really is no big deal? And yet, we open the scriptures today, we realize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is indeed something that we much, much respond, we must respond to. It's a reality that necessitates our response. So really the question today is how? How do we respond? How do we not overreact, underreact maybe? Because it's also possible that some of us here today aren't overreacting to anything, that we're actually underreacting, underresponding. So based on the truth, the reality that Jesus is alive, what is our response? How do we deal with such an event? This isn't the first time this question has been asked. And I'm going to have you turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. What must we do? What is our response? How do we respond asking it a different way 
to the reality of Christ's resurrection, of Jesus being alive. Listen to these words. This verse 36 is really the conclusion of the first sermon ever preached in the life of the church. You see, if you look back, you'll notice that, that um, uh, the, the Spirit had come down on the church and they began to speak in other languages. And these men were asking the question as they're hearing truth being declared in many languages as people traveled to Jerusalem for the feast. Uh, they're asking the question, what does this mean? And some of the people said, well, the, they've all had a few too many. And uh, some would conclude that they uh, had too much to drink, but in all reality, it was only the third hour of the day, so that wasn't what was going on. So what's going on? Well, then Peter begins to preach a message about really what is taking place in history, the outpouring of the Spirit. But more than that, something more significant and we read the conclusion of what really all of this means. Verse 36, and I'll read through 41. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, speaking of Jesus, made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen and amen. How would you respond if I told you that your actions were responsible for another man's death? How, if we just magnified a little bit, what if I told you that you were responsible for the death of God's one and only son? Now even more, that if I told you that you did not have the final say in this, that God had the final say about what you did. God had the final say in reference to his son, and he raised him from the dead. Not only that, but he hasn't just raised him from the dead, but he's exalted this son of his that you were responsible for killing to the highest place as king, full of absolute power and authority? What if I told you that he would ultimately use this power to put his enemies under his feet? That's what the crowd heard. 
the Jesus that you crucified? Well, God raised him from the dead. Vindicated him in his work. And now he has all rule and authority over all things. And he's going to put all of his enemies under his feet. This Jesus, whom you killed, is Lord and Christ. How would you respond to that? The crowd, you see, says when they heard this, when they heard that they were responsible for the death of Jesus and that he has now been raised from the dead, the text says that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It was like a thud, a punch to the gut. And in that moment, they were overwhelmed with a weight so overwhelming with a fear that gripped them because they understood the position that they were now in. This crowd experiences the overwhelming gravity of their guilt before God. They were cut to the heart. They knew that this reality was something that that something needed to be done about. Like, and so they asked the question with great urgency and intensity, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do about this? They're faced dead on with their guilt and God's vindication of the man that they rejected. They were overwhelmed with their guilt and sin before God, and they knew they were toast. What shall we do? Something needs to be done. We're doomed, if this is true. We are doomed. And we should feel this as well today. We should consider the events of Holy Week, the suffering, the death of Jesus Christ. We should not look into this story and just say, oh, look at what happened. Look at what they did. But as we sang Friday night, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. That the death of Christ was a event, an event, a reality, was a result in some way of our sin, my sin, your sin. And it's something we must face today. If we're going to be responding at all appropriately to the resurrection, we're going to respond by facing the weight of our own sin. Cut to the heart. What must we do? Now, some of you here today, uh, the word sin may be even new to you. Your actions and state before God. Your alienation from Him. You being an enemy of Him because of your sin. 
because of your rejection and your disobedience and the state of your heart just being in a place of death before him. But understand that these people knew who they were in relationship to God, especially given the reality that they've just heard. They had it wrong about Jesus, and now Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. We must feel the weight of our sin and guilt before God if we're ever going to respond appropriately to the reality of Christ's resurrection or to have any hope in the midst of it. We must face the reality of our sin and guilt before God. So are you asking the question this morning, what must I do? What must I do? We should be. Ask that question this morning. Did you hear that Jesus is alive and he's risen and he has all rule and authority. He's going to use that authority to put his enemies under his feet. What must I do? Is there a more significant question for us this morning than just starting there? What must I do? What shall we do? So we respond to the resurrection by facing the weight of our own sin. But not only that, we respond in accordance with God's call regarding our total transformation. The first word he goes on to say, Peter, is repent. Man, that word's got a bad rap. Sounds like an old school 50s, like Billy Graham style evangelist kind of preacher, right? Everyone's hot. Everyone's hot up in here all the time. The preacher's tapping his brow you know, repent! He's wearing a sandwich board. He's got a mic. Repent's got a bad rap. It sounds just like old judgmentalism. Legalism. Repent! But we see that that word, whether, it's not, it not, whether it has a bad rap or not, is the appropriate response that God is calling every one of us to. Repent! Let's not throw out the concept with a misunderstanding of the word based on some whacked out preaching. Now, this is good preaching. We're called to repent, amen? This is the gospel call. Repent. I know it's a loaded term, but here, let's, let's unpackage it a little bit. Here's what it simply means, especially in this context. It means change your mind. Change your mind. Have a differing view of Jesus than you previously did. That's what we're called to do in response to the resurrection. If Jesus is indeed alive, that changes everything about our understanding of who he is. That's a change of mind. That's what repentance is. The view that you previously held about Jesus, which led you to kill him, and mock him, and shame him, and spit at him, and flog him, and crucify him, that view of Jesus that led you to do that, to cry out for Barabbas, dude, you got to throw that view out. You have to have a completely new view and understanding of Christ because of his resurrection. Repent just means change your mind. So this morning, change your mind about Jesus. Your preconceived notions about who he is, just a man, who came and was nice and died and is an example for us. He's so much more than that. He is the risen Lord. So change your mind. Change your mind about Jesus. You need a new way of thinking. Uh, another way to say this, it's a change of life, right? 
It's not just a change. Oh, well, I believe that to be true. A change of mind about Jesus leads to a change of life, right? One pastor explained to his five-year-old daughter who asked him, what does repentance mean? You say repentance a lot, Dad. What does repentance mean? He said, it means to turn. So I looked at him bewildered and said, let me show you. So the daughter came to him and he said, turn around and run away from me. And so the daughter started to run away. And then the father said, stop, turn around and come back to me. The daughter stopped, turned around and came back to the father. And he said, that's repentance. That's repentance. You were running away from God. And hearing that you heard the word repent, turn and come back. 180 degree shift of our life in relationship to Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. See, it's a change of mind. It's a turning, a change of direction. Now, you're running not away from God, but toward God because of who Jesus is. So repent. Change your mind. Turn your life and run back to God because of the reality of the resurrection. Such a wonderful thing to hear that. John Piper says, this is the demand of Jesus to every soul. Repent. Be changed deep within. Replace all God-dishonoring, Christ-belittling perceptions and dispositions and purposes with God-treasuring, Christ-exalting one. Change. Turn. Replace. Walk in newness of life. But the second thing he tells them is that not only to repent, but be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. We just witnessed that this morning. Right? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. He's saying become a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Right? The end of Matthew 28. Make disciples. The church was given that command. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're, making, you're becoming a disciple. So again, as you turn from sin and turn to Jesus, as you change your mind about him, now there's the call to become a disciple of Jesus, to follow him. Where he goes, what he does. And it's also a command to signify your union with Jesus in your death and resurrection, in, in his resurrection. Right? It's not that Nathan got saved this morning. No. He is saved through union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And baptism signifies that. This is what God has done. So as you repent and turn to Jesus, become a disciple of Jesus, guess what? Signify your union with him. His death is your death. His life is your life. What he's basically saying is, you are totally now going to be transformed. Totally new person. Because of the resurrection. New direction. New life. New identity. New behaviors. New affections in your heart. Guess what? Because of your union with Jesus Christ. His life now, his work now, becomes a definitive 
way to, to explain and understand your existence. The personal work of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. This becomes the defining principle of everything. Really, he's the defining person. Your relationship with Jesus becomes everything to you as you follow him and turn from sin. That's what we're called to do. To no longer live for yourself, but to live for him. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what we do in response to the resurrection. We live by faith. And it's not explicit here, but it's implicit that to turn from sin and to turn to Jesus and to to. Uh, Submit yourself to the waters of baptism, which is an eternally redefining moment. That is such an act of radical faith and trust in him. Do you see that? I trust in him. I no longer reject him, but I turn from sin and run to him, and I identify myself with him as he primarily identifies himself with me. I do this all in complete surrender, in total trust. So if you're here today and you feel the weight, and you face the weight of your own sin and guilt, turn to Christ. Trust in Christ. He's alive. Turn from your sins and trust in him. Surrender all. He is king and he is savior. Worthy of your trust. And so we respond in accordance with God's call regarding our total transformation. And I just want to pause for a moment and recognize for a minute, because you might miss this. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're more intuitive than I am. Sometimes it's like a box of rocks up here. But maybe you see it. But this is scandalous grace. Like, it makes no sense to me. It, it just goes against every understanding of, like, how do you respond to, like, if, you know, someone messed with you, someone stronger than you, someone killed you, someone killed, someone killed your son. I mean, as a father, you just try to enter in. Someone's responsible for your son's death. And now, the response isn't run for your life. Go hide in a cave. Because you're dead meat. Like, that, that just makes sense to me. You know, maybe I'm just, I love Liam Neeson, and no matter how many times, no matter how many times I've taken eight, I'm in. Sign me up. Went opening night, taken nine. It's the same story. Somebody took his daughter again, and he just wipes the slate clean. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. All other movie recommendations, I'll just stop there. But somebody did tell me to watch John Wick, and I was pleasantly surprised. But there's something in us about revenge. There's something in us about that. But that's not the God of the Bible at all. The God of the Bible looks at criminals, looks at sinners, looks at the guilty, the people that killed his son, and says, turn away from it. Come to Jesus, the one you killed. Come to Jesus. Be identified with him. His death is your death. His life is now your life. Trust in him and be saved. That is just... 
radical grace. So if you're here today and you're like, God would never accept me. God would never save me. God would never set me free from my sin. You don't understand how grace works. But I hope you will today. That this is how grace works. That's the crazy part of it. The illogical, it doesn't make any sense. Jesus came to save sinners. He knew what he was submitting himself to. He knew what he was going to do. And and on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. Why? Because they don't even know what they're doing. He's dying for those who killed him. He's dying for you. He's dying for me. So that he might give great covenant blessing. All the promises of the new covenant that he would give to all those whom he calls upon and all those who call upon Christ for salvation. That's it. We don't have to run for our lives from God. We don't have to run into the caves. We don't have to live this life to the the culture's definition of fullest, enjoying every waking moment, because once we die, we're doomed. We don't have to respond to that, because that's that's not God's grace, amen? God's grace beckons us to come back to him. Turn, come back to me. Be welcomed into my family. Receive my love. Receive my pardon. Receive my spirit. And enter into a covenant family that is assured of the hope of God's glory in heaven someday. Just mind-boggling grace to me. Do you see that? That's us. That's us. We're going to miss that if we don't pause for a moment. These were the most undeserved recipients of grace. Undeserved recipients. And what does God say to them? Listen, repent and be baptized, every one of you. For what? For the forgiveness of your sins. That's what God's grace does. It does not accommodate sin. That's what we like. God's gracious. He doesn't care about my sin. He loves me no matter what. Phewee. God's grace forgives, doesn't accommodate, right? In Christ, his death and resurrection, God God secures for us forgiveness of sin. God's grace in Christ fully pardons all those who deserve punishment. Do you hear that today? No matter who you are, what you've done, no matter how, how guilty you may feel today, no matter how grotesque your sin, no matter how morbid your mind, scripture says if you turn to Christ and you're United with him in his death and resurrection, you are fully pardoned. Fully pardoned, forgiven of every past, present, future sin. That's what God's grace does. It transforms us by forgiving us. But not only that, God's grace in Christ gives us his own presence to those who deserve absence. You see, God's grace doesn't doesn't bring us back to neutral. Well, we're not in trouble anymore. No. God's grace uh, is one that, that provides what we need. Him. The greatest good, John Piper talked, the greatest good of the gospel is that God gives us himself. His presence inside of us to live in us, to dwell within us, to empower us to do what we are simply unable to do in our own spiritual weaknesses. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive 
the gift of the Holy Spirit. God comes to you, lives with you. We know that, that the Spirit now cries out, Abba, Father. So we're no longer enemies with God when we turn to Christ. We are children of God. Did you hear that? He turned criminals into kids through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Scandalous, illogical, nonsensical grace to us in our humanity. But that's what God has done in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has turned criminals deserving of death into kids receiving his very presence inside of them. Praise be to God. We think too little of these things. Too little. And last, trying to wrap it up before I scream at you till four. God's grace also includes those who deserve to remain excluded. God's grace does something to undeserved recipients. You see, this, there's so much that we could talk about here. Big picture here is what we're seeing is all the promises of, that the old covenant uh, foreshadowed. The new covenant now uh, brings about those promises of forgiveness of sin. Of this presence of God by the Spirit. They'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I'll put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I'll put my spirit within them. I'll take that heart of stone and remove it and I'll give them a heart of flesh. See, that's what Jesus Christ has now fulfilled and given to us. And this community of people known as Israel, it's now expanded to the world. All those who call. All those whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The nations. The nations who were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Ephesians says, strangers to the covenant of promise. He says, yeah, come on in because of Christ. Come on in. Be a part of my family. Hear the gospel call. Understand the reality of the resurrection. And you too, who were once far off, strangers to hope, and promise. Guess what? If you repent, if you turn to Christ, and you two are baptized to signify a union with him that you have by faith in his finished work, guess what? You too. Promises for you now. For your children. And for all the Lord our God would call to himself. It's for the world. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. No one is excluded. The world has to deal with the resurrection of Jesus. And the world needs to see that it is the sole remedy for human predicament. Satan, sin, and death. The world needs to see Christ, his work, his victory. The world needs to see it, hear it, and respond to its reality and then be included into this great hope and promise. That's what God's grace does. can't be limited to one ethnicity. No. One nation. No. It is God's gift to the world to be received by faith. So if you're here today and you feel so guilty, you're here today. I understand if you don't feel guilty, these promises kind of 
kind of hit you on the forehead, eh, maybe. That this is for those who are struggling in shame and guilt and feel the weight of it. These are for people that feel abandoned by God and feel so far removed from relationship with Him. It says, if you turn to Him, I'll live inside of you. And for people that feel far off, feel so excluded, that they don't belong, that God would never receive them or accept them. That's what the hope of the gospel says and brings to those who are far. Come. The promise is for you too. It's for your children. It's for all those who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Is the Lord Jesus calling you to himself this morning? Respond to the call. Respond in a way that's appropriate to the event. Respond in accordance with the event that took place. Jesus is alive. Respond to the call. The great hope. Verse 21 of chapter 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All whom the Lord God calls to himself. It's both and. You're hearing the call now. Call on the name of the Lord. And you shall be saved. Respond appropriately. In accordance with the event. Don't overreact. If that's even possible. Don't underreact. See we underreact. Even as Christians. We, we keep playing with sin. We treat it lightly. We don't keep repenting. Don't under-respond. Don't just come to to church this morning and and hear the story of the resurrection and just kind of pat it on the head like a cute little kid. Well, that's nice. Well, that's a nice story. I mean, we watched um, both the first, uh, what did we watch yesterday? Iron Man yesterday? And Captain America yesterday. It was a movie marathon at the Maisie's. Getting ready for Endgame. Great stories. Great stories. Guess what? I didn't do any push-ups after for the first time in a while. You know, like you usually respond to stories. Like, oh, dude, I'm joining the military. And Silas is like, dude, you're up 25 since high school. You know? No response. Great story. Click. Don't let that be today. Great story. Click. I'm not going to do anything about it. See, those are fake stories that are just fun for entertainment. And believe me, we'll be there Friday. But understand this. That's not what the resurrection is. This account of the resurrection, it's not a nice little story that we go, oh, that's nice. What's for lunch? What's for lunch? I mean, ham? Can't we do better than that? There's so much more here. A real historical event. Truth is, we don't make mountains out of molehills with this one. We make molehills out of mountains with the resurrection. Something that stands as tall as Everest, we turn into a molehill. Something that we can step on and walk over and disregard. But the resurrection is a victory unlike any other. The crucifixion is a death unlike any other. Jesus is a God-man unlike any other. The gospel is good news unlike any other. Therefore, our response should be unlike any other. Repent. Baptized, forgiven, 
receive the Spirit, included in God's covenant family. Right? The resurrection of Jesus is a reality to which we must respond. There's no room for neutral today. No room for neutral. Even a snubbing is a response. Right? So respond and receive all the promises that Christ in his finished work has secured for you. Amen? Amen. And that's what we celebrate this morning at the Lord's table. 